you know, that is a way to lure people into learning about the biology of sharks is through this this fear that is has been engendered through, you know, think movies like Jaws and, and then, of course, exaggerated with things like Sharknado. And, uh, this is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers brought to you by the Fur Bearers. Shark Week has come and gone for the year, but your chance to learn and celebrate sharks can go on thanks to a new book that brings together academic study and the thrill of learning about the ocean's great creatures. Shark Biology and Conservation, Essentials for Educators, Students, and Enthusiasts is set to publish September 1st, 2020 by John Hopkins Press. The title may be dry, but the authors, Drs. Daniel Abel and Dean Grubbs, bring a clear passion and naturalist view of shark biology that encourages curiosity and excitement for readers. Dr. Grubbs joined Defender Radio and discussed how he and Dr. Abel developed the book to be accessible for most readers, why including scientific information with context was important, and the incredible human impact on the hundreds of shark species that inhabit our planet. We also talked about our favorite shark movie. We also talked about our favorite monster shark movies, which shark is the Labrador Retriever of the Sea, and the oceanic adventure stories that captured our imaginations. Dr. Grubbs even took the time to give a scientific opinion of my irrational fear and firm belief that sharks inhabit Lake Ontario. Shark lovers, I've got one thing to let you know about before we start the interview. My friends over at AnimalStone.com don't just rock the terrestrial wildlife-inspired jewelry. They've got a shark. Bahamas the Shark Charm is available in silver and yellow gold and pairs wonderfully with the various bracelets and chains available. This isn't just ethically sourced, family-owned business jewelry for the sake of gorgeous jewelry. Every purchase of Bahamas the Shark Charm directly supports People of the Water, a nonprofit that contributes to major projects to protect our oceans, sharks, and caves. You can live every week like Shark Week with Bahamas the Shark Charm, so head over to AnimalStone.com and use promo code DEFENDERRADIO for 10% off. That's AnimalStone.com with promo code DEFENDERRADIO. I thought a fun place to start is at the beginning of the story of this book. Um, Jason Motts, one of our writers who reviewed the book for us, uh, wrote about remembering going to the library as a kid and seeing the great big shark books. Uh, and I have that exact same memory. And they were the wonderful, uh, I don't know if they were National Geographic or another company, but the really highly illustrated, not a lot of actual text, but as a kid, a ton of fun to look at these amazing photos and diagrams of these giant sea monsters, so to speak. Uh, and now it's many, many years later, um, and I can't help after going through it at the same time. I remember some of the joy uh, of flipping through those books as I read this one. Um, but at the same time, I've also read biology books that give me a nosebleed two minutes into reading it. Uh, and you and your, your writing partners have found the middle ground of this, I think, very perfectly. Uh, so I thought... How does your book tie those two sort of diametrically opposed views of education of sharks or not of sharks about sharks, uh, although we'll get to the education of sharks, 
how do you tie those two kind of diverse ideas together, but also include some new stuff? Yeah, well, well, I'm glad I'm, I'm glad you uh, recognize that uh, we were we were attempting. It sounds like we, we succeeded in, in hitting that middle ground because mm-hmm. so this book started really um, about 25 years ago <laughs> uh, in that um, uh, Dr. Abel and I started teaching shark biology courses to undergraduate students uh, in the mid 90s. And um, we lamented that there wasn't a book that really fit that that um, education level. Uh, we, we really wanted a, a textbook that, you know, people would pick it up off of a bookshelf somewhere because it was nicely illustrated and they would, uh, you know, be visually appealing. And um, but then it also had all of the information necessary to teach a shark biology courses course to a high school student and undergraduate student um, material that's accessible to the general public as well, but not nearly as as dense and um, as as some of the upper level, you know, shark textbooks that, mm-hmm. that geared more toward graduate students. And so and so we 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 basically made this wrote this book to to follow this course that we've been that we've been teaching uh, for 25 years. And um, and we're both active researchers as well as educators um, in the field. And so we're and so we're doing shark research. And so we're we're um, uh, so we know what the the newest um, research is going on. We mm-hmm. can we're able. I think I think you know it's it's often that um, research is 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 best uh, transmitted by those that are actually doing the work. And so we're able to actually pull from our own experiences in the book as well as those of, of our uh, friends and colleagues. And so, um, and so that's sort of where we, where we were trying to go with this is, uh, to make it so that it's entertaining to read and accessible to anyone in the general public. Um, but also, you know, would be useful to, to undergraduate or even beginning graduate students. And I think the style of writing achieves that very well as well. Uh, also, and something I, I made a note of is that there's a certain amount of charm in the writing. Uh, and it's it's a charm that I am used to seeing in naturalist books. So the more observational, the more these are my experience type books, as opposed to a scientific text. Was that something else that was intentional to try and bring together these separate audiences absolutely we so I, I you know these stories and these anecdotes that we put in here those are many of those which many of them got left you know uh on the cutting room floor because mm-hmm. we just didn't have uh, enough room in the book to include them but a lot of these stories and the amusing at least we think amusing anecdotes um are ones that um are ones that we have been telling you know, uh, during our lectures for, for all of those many years. Um, and of course we get new stories all the time as well. Um, and so, so that part of it's definitely true, but we're also, uh, both naturalists at heart. And, um, you know, I was, I was trained by, uh, you know, I think in, when you get to PhD level in academia, um, there are fewer and fewer naturalists among the faculty, unfortunately, uh, but I, I was fortunate to be trained by a naturalist that was trained by many, many generations of naturalists. And um, and so that's sort of the way we, we view the world, um, as well as our, our research. So, so I'm, um, yes, yeah, so I'm glad that, that that came through. That was definitely um, I don't I don't even know that that was necessarily an objective as much as it just reflects the way we we think about things. 
Yeah, there's. I, I think it is fair to say that there is personality to the writing, which is something that is frequently pushed out by academia. Uh, and as a former journalist, I can say I push it out sometimes, too. Uh, you want to avoid editorializing uh, uh, with frequency, but there's a time for having that voice, and it does the job. Uh, something that jumped out at me very early on in the book, too, is, is you have the not just the list of taxonomic hierarchy, but an explanation of it. Um, and that's right near the beginning of the book. What And I'm going to kind of combine this with something else that happened is when you go over the physiological characteristics of different sharks and different subspecies of sharks, uh, you, you do a great job of taking the difficult Latin words and giving it meaning and context. So rather than just saying, this is what it is, you say, this is what it is and why it matters that it is. And I, again, for me, the way I learned, I loved that. That just jumped off the page at me of, oh, okay. So rather than just being told, here's a lengthy Latin term that means this. It's here's why we use these terms and here's how it then impacts what we do, which I found really interesting. Uh, it, was that again, I, I, and I'm going to keep asking this, was that intentional or is that simply a result of the intention behind the work? No, that was definitely intentional. Um, we, we, the, the book more or less follows the order of the way we've taught most of our classes. And so we started off with a with an overview of the evolution of the sharks and their relatives and then go into the modern classification of all of those sharks. And, you know, and I, I always joke with the students that, you know, in about six hours over four lectures, you're going to you'll you'll know any shark on the planet, at least, um, you know, you'll know their their higher classification. And so, and I also start off by telling them that, um, you know, we're not going to use common names in this course very much because the common names change from place to place and there's multiple common names for a given species. So, um, and so in order to make the, the, the Latinized words a little more accessible, I do try to, because it's the same with me. I want to know why it's named, uh, why the, the way it's named. I mean, we, you know, we, I've been part of the description of a of a few species of sharks mm -hmm. myself, and we try to use a name that is is descriptive uh, for for the animal. And so, if you can give the student a little bit of the background, the etymology of that of that animal, it goes a uh, a very long way to helping them remember it, rather than just giving them, you know, a list of of scores of scientific names and telling them to memorize these. You know. Um, try to try to try to get them on on the same page with with understanding why things are called what they are and the history of of naming them as well. So. Yeah, I love it. That's uh, I was actually just talking about this was with someone the other day. I have the habit of if you if you want me to learn something, I need to have a practical purpose for it or else it just falls out of my brain. I love shirts. I'm wearing my Shark Week shirt just for this interview. Um, <laughs> I, I have grown up loving them and. Something that you talk about, again, early in the book that I want to get into, because I just made someone watch the Shark Week special on this, was the 1916 Jersey Shore attacks, mm -hmm. uh, which, from my understanding, was one of the first real times America had experienced that kind of scenario, which now is a, you know, a, a once a year occurrence in the media. Uh, and 
from that, we then also get onto the shark monster movies like Jaws remaining popular. Uh, of course, the 1916 Jersey Shore attacks are considered some of the inspiration for that book um, and subsequent movie. I guess I what I want to get at is, is the conversation about the balance of respect, fear and caution as a result of all of this, um, because you can't. And I, and I under, this this comes from my more terrestrial mindset. You can't deny that in the right circumstance, these animals can do tremendous harm to a person. So we have to be respectful of them. But at the same time, the fear of them that is born from some of this pop culture stuff that we're talking about has resulted in the, the mass slaughter of sharks, as well as other species in the ocean. Um, is that something that has played into your work over the years as a, as a researcher, instructor, and as part of this book? So I, I guess I should go back to, to what got me interested in sharks to begin with, because I, I, I grew up on the on the coast of the Gulf of Mexico in, in Florida, fishing a lot. And um, and so the first sharks I ever encountered were relatively small ones, but I just thought they were the coolest fish I'd ever seen. Mm -hmm. It's really cool things. This is before I was like 10 years old. Um, but then I did have an experience um, when I was about 10, my family would often pick up go, go uh, scalloping. You go and snorkel and pick up bay scallops in, you know, waist deep water. And, um, and a large great hammerhead sort of charged me. Um, it didn't do anything to me. They, they're, they're, they've sort of got a reputation for having these, uh, probably the closest thing there is to a territorial shark in that they, they, they have their hunting grounds for stingrays and, and anything is perceived as a competitor. They may chase it out of the water. They, they rarely actually bite anybody, but it, it was the first time I, that it really occurred to me as a kid that, yeah, this is an animal that could actually, you know, do serious damage uh, to me. But, you know, the general public, I think, has, um, I've, I've often over the years referred to it as an irrational fear of sharks, and that's one of the things that attracted me to them. But it, but you bring up the, the good point that it's it's not entirely irrational. There's there's parts of that fear that are, are rational, mm -hmm. uh, because these are, some of these species are large animals that, that indeed can do um, uh, a lot of damage. And of course, um, you know, whereas they don't, they don't want to, to, to bite people um, as, as human population increases and we're m more and more uh, of us going into the water, um, you know, we're coming in contact with them more and more often. And so I, you know, I live in Florida which is the shark bite capital of the world. Mm -hmm. Well, the reason for that is we have huge numbers of tourists that come down and swim at the beaches. And a lot of times those, uh, the times that those tourists flock to the beaches at the same times that we have huge, uh, migrations of, of sharks going, going up the coast. And in certain areas, we have a photo in the, in the book, uh, of, from, from an airplane that a colleague, Steve Kajura took of, of, um, you know, just uh, dense schools of blacktip sharks migrating up the east coast of, of Florida. And if that coincides with spring break or Memorial Day or something like that, you know, you're, you're going to get lots of people and sharks uh, together. And even though those sharks are looking for small, shiny fish to eat, every now and then one makes a mistake and, uh, and, and bites, bites somebody. But I t still tell everyone that it's... Um, the most dangerous, by far the most dangerous thing they do when they go to the beach, of course, is, is driving to the beach. Yep. Um, the risk of, 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 of being bitten is, is minuscule 
overall. Uh, but I, but it, you know, that is a way to lure people into to um, into learning about the biology of sharks um, is through this this fear that is has been engendered through you know thing, movies like Jaws and and then of course exaggerated with things like Sharknado and uh, these mildly fancy. exaggerated from a scientific <laughs> point of view. Yeah, just mildly. Yeah, just okay. Like, uh, yeah, that one in, in shark, <laughs> and uh, Sharktopus. Sharktopus was my favorite mm. one. The, uh, a hybrid shark octopus. Have you in. seen Mecha Shark versus Megalodon though? No, I have not seen that one. Oh, that's I, a good one too. They build Mecha Shark to battle Megalodon, and Mecha Shark uh, comes back for a sequel as well. So I won't spoil it for you, but <laughs> oh man, it's, uh, yeah, I have to put that on my Netflix uh, list. Uh, <laughs> sure. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I think that's a it's a, it's a good way to lure lure people in into uh, wanting to learn more about sharks and I, you know and one of the goals I think uh, um, that we had in introducing students and the general public to sharks and shark biology is also making them understand that those sharks of of you know myth and fancy are actually not the not a typical shark at all. You know, everybody thinks you think of a shark, you think of a white shark or a bull shark or a tiger shark, the big ones that scare people. But um, in reality, most sharks are small animals, and actually most sharks live in the deep sea, you know. And so try to, to introduce them to all of these other fantastic uh, sharks that live live in environments that, that we will never be able to visit generally. Um, I think it was a big goal as well. Oh, for sure. And that's, I mean, I remember, again, aging and dating myself a bit, watching Sequest um, with uh, the guy from, uh, was it Rob, uh, what's his name from Jaws? But he, uh, that was a fun show too, because it was the mystery of the ocean. That that was yep. the entire premise. And that was, for me as a kid, that was enough of, you mean this thing covers most of our planet and we don't know what's down there. For a little kid with anxiety, I mean, it's really a perfect <laughs> perfect storm uh yeah. 2000 leagues beneath the sea i mean that, yeah. that was that was it for me yeah yo that's a great one too with although i still get frustrated when we get to the part of uh the author needed to make his money so he just started naming species of fish for four pages uh <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. I, I like to joke about that but um talking about the the fear of sharks and all of this and you get into the the adaptations and the physiological characteristics especially especially the um the sensory part of it and that's it's it's incredible the the array of senses sharks have evolved particularly compared to other species um uh, that i'm aware of one of the things though that i i wanted to touch on is the concept of uh uh to use a phrase from brooklyn 99 mouthfeel um <laughs> sharks will test things with their mouths to a degree is is that true because i know that's like with dogs they've got all these wonderful senses but sometimes you need to put it in your mouth to figure out what it is yeah absolutely well i mean they don't they don't have you know hands with a with, you know with opposable thumbs to feel it so um so absolutely they do that they do have taste buds so they can taste as well so mm -hmm. they're 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 getting some taste out of it but there's no doubt that they want to you know sharks have you know or unusual in that they have their their serially replaceable teeth and yep. so if they break their teeth they can of course replace them but they don't want to do that that costs energy 
uh, to, to replace their teeth. So if you can sort of test something a little bit first um, and, and see if it's, you know, potentially edible or if it's potentially going to break your teeth, um, then, then that's a good thing um, to, to preserve those teeth. And um, I'm, I'm convinced that, so, so I've, I've tagged somewhere in, on the order of 25 or 30,000 sharks. And so, and I've been bitten a handful of times um, that, you know, required medical attention. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, the only times that it's been bad enough to really spend time in the hospital was on my hands when I wasn't wearing gloves. And um, I've been bitten probably 25 times when I've had my hand in gloves, but the shark bit and I was able to get my hand out of the glove and leave the shark with a glove in its mouth. And I'm, and I'm convinced that what that is, is that as soon as that, when that shark is biting, when its teeth hit that glove, there's this, you know, tiny fraction of a second that it is essentially its brain is figuring out whether that is something that it should bite or not. And so it, it's sort of this test that as soon as it makes contact, it slows down ever so slightly. You could barely be able to detect it in, in you know, in a, 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 a slow motion camera, but uh, just enough time to give you the ability to get your hand out of the out of the glove. And if you don't do that, you know, if you don't have that glove on, then you then you get bit and it latches on, and then you have to call for help. Mm-hmm. Um, so so yeah, I, and and I, I think they do that across across the board, and you can watch them. You know, things like nurse sharks and. And my co-author's favorite, the horn sharks. You know, when they bite something like a sea urchin, they don't just go all in and crunch it. They, they, they basically will suck it in, give it a little bite, spit it out, bring it back in, give it a little bite, make sure that they get it all, you know, crushed up just right and tenderized, so to speak, before they swallow this thing. Even if it's something hard like a lobster shell or a, or a, or a sea urchin. Now, which which shark is the Labrador retriever of the sea in that they just swallow it? And if they don't like it, they'll throw it up later on the couch. <laughs> well, well, a lot of a lot of sharks can do that. Mm-hmm. A lot of sharks can evert their stomachs. Um, but now I, I, you know, I think tiger sharks are the ones that are most notorious for eating things that are decidedly inedible. Yeah. Um, and and uh, and then they may spit it out. They may not. I've I've found, you know, in our research, you know, I've I've found, you know, ten kilogram rocks wow. in the belly of a tiger shark. You know, um, and of course, folks have found things like tin cans and things like that as well. But they do have this un- unusual ability to actually, basically, just evert their stomach, just just turn it inside out, out of their mouths. And just shake it out like a you know like a grocery sack, and then just swallow it back down. Um, and I've actually seen uh, you know a shark do that in the wild, and um, and it's the it's the craziest thing. I imagine <laughs> so. Yeah, and, you know, just see it shake out a bunch of bones or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you know, I think that's what we've had uh, in our in our research where we've we've tagged sharks with these satellite tags that look like a microphone attached. Uh, to the to the back of a shark, um, we've actually had those sharks get eaten by bigger sharks, and so the shark swallows the tag, but then anywhere from three to seven days later, the tag floats to the surface, and that's you know that's basically that shark, you know, everting its stomach and just puking up this this tag, 
and then the tag floating up and actually giving us all the data that we have. <laughs> That's crazy. Because they, you know, because unlike you know, if your dog swallows something inedible, you know, it, it, you know, if it's not too large, you just wait for him to pass it. Yeah. And, uh, but sharks have this, you know, this crazy spiral valve that that dictates that most of the things they've eaten has to be broken down into a really small size before it passes into the intestine. And so that's not an option for it to go all the way through the intestine and come out the rear end. It's got to come. If it's inedible, it's either going to stay there or they have to have a mechanism to puke it up. And so that's what they do. That's pretty cool. And talking about some of that stuff, uh, there was some talk of cognition as well. And this got me really curious and I haven't had a chance to sit with it fully and digest it all. But I, I, while there has been a lot of work done or some work done on trying to figure out shark cognition and intelligence and I guess teachability, um, I'm not sure what the proper term for that training, so to speak, is. Um, but when we talk about intelligence in other animals, specifically mammals, we try and compare it to something to give us context. So we use, continuing to use the dog parable, it's a dog is like a toddler in terms of problem solving and intelligence and whatnot. Is there an overly simplified short form of expressing shark intelligence in that way? Or is the, the massively broad range of species kind of make that impossible? Well, yeah, I think I think we don't know enough from from enough species to really have it uh, uh, you know broadly described. But um, that said, you know we, we could separate two two forms of intelligence. You know, there's the trainable, the trainable. You know, how trainable are you, and how long do you retain that training versus intelligence that requires problem solving. You know, and and very there's been very little work in any sort of fishes and looking at their problem solving ability. Um, but a lot of the really early work um, done in, in the in the trainability was done actually by uh, Sonny Gruber, who who was um, you know we we uh, acknowledge and dedicate in the uh, in the book because he he ran the lab that uh, that we um, that we taught this course for uh, through for 25 years, um, and he taught you know lemon sharks many many uh, you know back in the 60s. Um, to essentially tell him when they could see light, tell him if they could see color, to go through a, ma a maze for a food reward. And once they got through the maze, they would have to select the correct color door to get their food reward. Um, and so that's how he, he showed that they actually could discriminate colors, mm -hmm. um, at least shades of colors. But what he found was that if you train a, a mouse or a rabbit to do that exact same kind of training, um, the shark will retain it much longer than that mouse or the rabbit. Um, so if you, if you train them to do this and then you remove them from that stimulus altogether and just put them back in the tank, let them swim around for a while, you know, he could put them back in that maze a year later and they would remember that training. Whereas the, you know, most of the, the you know, a mouse or a rabbit will, will forget it after a couple of weeks, mm -hmm. um, have to retrain them. So, so in terms of being trainable and being able to retain that, that information, they're, they're, they're incredibly advanced, way, way more advanced than we give them, give them credit for. And yet no shark army with lasers. Um, <laughs> not yet. Not, not yet. Not yet. That's it. All right. We got an exclusive here. Not yet. Um, <laughs> I want to talk human impact. This takes up, um, I, I actually say this is almost two chapters in the book uh, yeah. because you separate it out from sort of fisheries and climate change. Um, 
Has there been an event in history that was not catastrophic? So, you know, meteor hitting and things like that, that has caused as much change or pressure on sharks as humanity? Well, yeah, right. Outside of the great, uh, the, the mass extinctions, certainly not. I mean, you know, the, the, the mass extinction event 250 million years ago caused, uh, you know, the loss of 96% of all marine life. Um, but outside of those, those mass extinction events uh, that, that affected everything, certainly not. And, and so at, over the last, particularly over the, the last 70 years or so, um, as as um, you know, as we move from from using um, you know sails that were were steam to 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 uh, diesel and gasoline engines, we move from having boats that had to uh, get their catch back to the dock as quickly as possible to those that have onboard freezing ability or ice making abilities, or even those fisheries that now have individual ships that do nothing but freeze and store the catch of other ships. Um, and, and of course, with the, the um, increase in, in technology that allows people to go further and further from home to fish, all of those things are, have, have allowed, um, you know, humans to, to, um, to increase their reach greatly and, and increase the amount of catch that they can can take and then hold and then if you couple that with of course our um uh you know grossly um overpopulated human um you know uh, the human overpopulation issue and our increased need for protein of some sort um that that has has driven more and more fisheries to to um to go further from home and try to get more and more fish and one of the big issues, I guess, over, over, um, you know, worldwide has been that there are very few fisheries that only catch, um, you know, their target. Um, so, you know, most fisheries catch a lot of things that they're not trying to catch. Mm-hmm. And so if you run into where, where the shark issue really has run into, to, to a, a buzzsaw, is if you have fisheries that are targeting things that uh, like tunas that are that re- reproduce really quickly, and that you could actually overfish many tuna tuna populations severely, and then if you gave them a break for a few years, they recover because they reproduce so quickly. Um, but the sharks don't. It, you know, the sharks have most of the the ones that are caught in fisheries are live bearers, so they're giving birth to live young. They take many years to reach sexual maturity, and so. If, if they're caught in those same fisheries with the tuna and their population declines by 90% or whatever it might be, it may take many decades for them to recover. And of course, we, we saw that in, in, uh, in the, in the U S um, with, with when a directed shark fishery started in the 1980s and in no time uh, shark populations were, were, um, were really, um, uh, dropped dr- dramatically, some by 90% or more. Fortunately, in the U.S., we, we've had a, a really aggressive um, efforts to manage the stocks. And so most of our shark stocks, for example, on the east coast of the U.S., where I, I do my work, um, have, have recovered or are at least recovering. Um, but even within the sharks themselves, you may have one species, like, say, a blacktip shark, that's capable because it, it reproduces relatively quickly and frequently 
it, you know, its population may recover in 10 years, but then on the other end of the spectrum, you have a, a species like a dusky shark that may take, you know, um, 70 years for its population to double. And so we're on recovery trajectories for those that are that are measured in centuries rather than even decades. So, um, and that's in the U.S. where you have some of the best managed shark fisheries in the world and other parts of the world that's nothing like that, of course. And most of the world's oceans, um, there, are, there are no fishery management plants for sharks. And so it's a huge problem. It's global in scale. Um, and it's and it it's also it takes on many many different levels of complexity from you know from artisanal fisher fisheries that that are just trying to provide protein for for their families all the way up to huge industrial scale fisheries for which sharks are an afterthought. Uh, so it's a difficult problem to deal with, but there are a lot of people interested in it, and and um, and a lot of more uh, a lot more people that are. Um, you know, really concerned with conservation of sharks, and so that's a good thing. We've 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 moved leaps forward in the last twenty years. Something that I always find, I don't know if it's surprising per se anymore, but of note is um, people are very quick to say we need to do better. The science says we need to do better, but it's very difficult to then look at the culture and the politics and the history and all of that stuff that goes with it. And we can very quickly forget the power of those, especially when we involve industry. Uh, so it's I think it's sort of just worth noting that it's it's a a big like the, 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 the enormity of the challenge needs to be uh, put in scale that way. And part of that, too, is talking climate change. So um, how is climate change? I mean, I think there's obvious ways, but what are maybe the more direct ways climate change is affecting general shark populations or more specifically shark habitat yeah so we you know um there aren't too many direct examples yet where we we have the hard data to show it but um you know they're they're over the last um i mean sharks have been tagged and released and and their distributions mapped for over 100 years now and um and so we can see how those distributions change and um and so you know, for example, on the, in that same area on the east coast of the United States where, where I work, it's, it's indisputable that there's been a northern shift um, of, of uh, shark populations as, as the um, climate as oceans have warmed. Uh, we, we can see it without, without mistake. And it, it's, um, you know, the, essentially where I did my Ph.D. work in Virginia, um, my advisor had a survey there that, that was started in the early 1970s. And by the time I was there in the early 1990s, already you could see that the species that we were catching there off Virginia were the ones that had been, it was more similar to the composition of sharks that were in North Carolina 20 years before, you know? And so now essentially, uh, you know, Rhode Island is 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 now essentially you know you know uh, what what um, is the sharks that were in Virginia in uh, during the peak of their summer migration in, in the 1970s they're they're way up into into Rhode Island at this in this point so um, so we definitely see this northern shift there's a lot of concern that you know I study small tooth sawfish which is an endangered species that's 
uh, tied to, it's a batoid, it's, it's related to stingrays, um, and it's, um, it's tied to red mangroves. And of course, we've lost a lot of our mangroves due to development, but we're also seeing a northern shift in the mangroves. And so, you know, we're waiting to see the, the, the population of, of those kinds of species shift north as well. Um, and of course, there's a really interesting uh, dichotomy setting up that we're trying to get a handle on now uh, in, the, in the eastern U.S. where you have populations of the same species of sharks that are on the east coast in the Atlantic and those in the Gulf of Mexico have a different population. Well, on the east coast, as temperatures warm, they can shift north, you know, and so you see this northern shift in their distribution. Um, of course, there's concern there that you are eventually, we may be losing altogether some of the colder water species that need that cold water to the north. Um, but in the Gulf of Mexico, there's only so far they can go. You know, they hit the panhandle of Florida and Alabama and Texas, and, and that's as far as they can go. Um, they can't shift any further north. And so do these populations start to dwindle? Do they start to adapt to the warmer temperatures, or do they just move to deeper water? We don't know. And so we're trying to, to, to look into those kind of, kinds of issues. Now, I can tell you, I've just completed our coastal shark survey here in the in northern Florida, and it's the warmest uh, year that we've had, you know, since I started the survey 12 years ago, and it's also the lowest catches we've we've ever had, uh, the lowest number of sharks. I mean, the water is, you know, 33 degrees Celsius. Um, you know, it's uh, it's like that's like what 92, 93 Fahrenheit. It's it's ridiculously warm. Yeah, it's scary out there. And I even remember there was a, it might have been Shark Week, it might have been something else about uh, off New England, uh, the the white sharks returning because the seals have returned. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember if the seals returned because of a fishery issue or a climate issue. But it was, it was a great sort of example of we, we have to be ready to adapt, uh, I think, as whether you're sort of on the research side or on the policy side or the general public, is we don't know what's going to happen next. So we have to be prepared to shift, which traditionally wildlife policy has not been great at doing. Um, but I think right. that's that's going to be something we're seeing more of sort of across across science uh, as we learn more and that knowledge starts to come in faster and faster and not to get off topic, but that's something we've seen with the virus. I think right now is those who quickly adapt to the new information are the ones who succeed. Right. Well, and we, and to, and to your point about um, recognizing these shifts and also being ready to adapt, we also have to be able to um, recognize that, different people have a different view of what the baseline was, what it, what, what you're, you're starting from, what your starting point was. Yeah. So we see that all the time here where, you know, you talk about the white sharks recovering after their population went down and they're recovering and, and coming back after the, and you see that not just on the, in, in uh, new England with the, with the seals, you see it on the West coast of, of the U S as well, with white shark populations recovering. Well, if your if your baseline, if you think the starting point is when the white sharks were at a minimum, then you think the world is exploding with white sharks now. But if your starting point is 50 years prior to that, then you recognize that actually we're getting back to, in terms of the population level, even though it may have shifted northward, 
we're getting back to closer to where it was as things recover. We're dealing with that here in Florida now where, where um, you know, uh, different types, different fisheries, recreational fishers are concerned because so many of their, their desired catch, their snappers and grouper get eaten by sharks when they're coming to the boat. And they're like, the sharks are out of control. We need to start culling sharks because um, I've been fishing here 25 years and we've never seen them like this. And, and, and my answer is you're absolutely right. In 25 years, you haven't seen them like this because 25 years ago was when the population was collapsed. But if you were here 40 years ago, when I started fishing these same regions of the Gulf of Mexico as a kid, uh, 45 years ago even, you would have seen this many sharks here. And so we're, we're getting back to, to a new, you know, a new normal, so to speak. So, and, and getting everybody to recognize that's a big, a big part of the problem. Oh, I, that we deal with the exact, we do a lot of coexistence work for communities. And one of the absolute largest issues we come up against is, well, I've lived here for 20 years and I've never seen a coyote. Right. Uh, or I've, you know, uh, one of the ones that we hear a lot actually is about beavers. As you, you may know, beavers covered North America. Just right. Absolutely. They they managed our entire landscape. Uh, colonization comes along for hats are popular in Europe and the beaver population is crushed, almost wiped out. And it's right. fascinating because you talk to people now. Uh, so fur trappers will say, well, beaver numbers are better than they've ever been. No, they're not. They're never going. It's not possible for them to be what they were because the land doesn't exist anymore. Right, right. But it's it's the exact same logic of what I have seen uh, is the baseline. And when we talk about biology, uh, and this is hard. This is the same as that whole billionaire shouldn't exist concept. Our brains struggle to hold the volume of numbers that we're talking about. Absolutely. We can't look five years back and forth and say, well, we fixed it. We have to look hundreds of years uh, if we're looking at ecosystem, if not thousands of years at times. Um, and that's hard to do unless you have specifically been trained to do it. Yeah, exactly. And then you, and then if you throw in to that the, the, the complexity that, that climate change uh, adds to that, mm -hmm. then, then it, that just, that just um, elevates it by an, an order of magnitude. Yeah. Uh, which are always fun conversations. Um, <laughs> so I have two questions left. One is very serious. One is a little less serious. I'll let you decide which is which. The first is where people should start if they want to get involved in protecting sharks and their habitats. The second is I need you to help me prove that sharks do exist on Lake Ontario and that me going in Lake Ontario will ultimately lead to a shark consuming me. <laughs> so, so uh i guess the the first one i would i would say is is the more serious one mm -hmm. and um and that uh uh and so the the number one thing i you know i'm not opposed to uh to people eating shark you know a shark is there there are sustainable ways to harvest sharks um in fact every every species could potentially be harvested sustainably except the question is what what level is sustainable mm. and so with sharks it tends to be at very low levels you know but there are some sharks like some smooth hounds and things like that that if the fishery is managed very carefully they could be harvested and they could be consumed but then are there great many species that reproduce way too slowly to ever have a commercial fishery for them so my, my, the biggest thing people can do is to, is to, in terms of consuming seafood, I think, is to make sure that they're trying to consume seafood that is sustainably harvested. 
And so that that doesn't even necessarily oftentimes that's um, uh, the sustainability of what they're eating is is that they view it in terms of, you know, you get a card that some, you know, NGO or aquarium or something put out that tells you that these fish are good to eat. These fish are not good to eat because they're not sustainable. But even those fish that are that are sustainably harvested, you have to really start thinking about and, and do a little research to see if if they're actually um, if, what, what the bycatch issues are. Yeah. What are the side effects of this? You know, because if, if that tuna is sustainably harvested, but it's at the same time catching lots of thresher sharks and mako sharks, then that's not a sustainable fishery. Um, so so that's that's the biggest thing they can do is, is really think about, um, you know, bycatch issues and whether the animal is, is uh, sustainably harvested. And then also just, um, you know, lobbying their their elected leaders to to um uh you know promote protection of of marine habitats and 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 live shorelines and seagrasses and mangroves and all of the different components of a of a fully functioning marine ecosystem that are necessary um and so those those are the two things i would i would suggest people do of course um, we can always just not eat animals i'll have to throw my little ethical opinion in there sure too, but yeah, and, <laughs> that's, and that's uh you know and that's certainly an argument to be made and my co my co-author in the book would agree with you on that yeah so. i do think though it, having those conversations have to take place it's it is very very easy to buy into marketing and not do the work you're talking about and Absolutely. i think that's why we keep coming up against overfishing as an issue um because a good marketing company Right. Like they can fix pretty much any problem these days. So, well, that's right. And of course, it's the, the human overpopulation is the ultimate problem mm -hmm. anyway. So uh, uh, in terms of Lake Ontario, yeah, yeah I don't uh, you know, there are very few sharks that could survive in Lake Ontario. There are almost no sharks that can uh, uh, the only sharks that can live uh, in freshwater, live out their lives in freshwater are things like bull sharks. Mm -hmm. And those are tropical species that uh, can't tolerate water temperatures below about, about 15 degrees Celsius. So, um, you know, and, you know, something like a Greenland shark that would love the water temperatures of Lake Ontario um, can't tolerate the freshwater. So, so I think you're, I think you're safe uh, for now, you know, until some, you know, mad scientists, genetically engineers, a, uh, a, a, a uh, shark to, to live out its whole lifespan in cold, cold, deep um, lakes, you know. All right. So so right now on the uh, a shark lives in Lake Ontario and could kill me camp. There's me and JJ, the dog. And on the other side, there are all of the shark experts, my family, friends and my therapist. So <laughs> I, I feel like we could still go either way on this one. Yeah, I, I, I think you'll be. I think you'll be safe. I mean, number one, it, it seems. It just seems to me, as a Floridian, that uh, Lake Ontario <laughs> is way too cold to go swimming in to begin with. So. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. You should try some of our northern lakes if you think that's cold. Oh yeah, I bet. To get your copy of Shark Biology and Conservation, contact your local bookstore. If you want to learn more about Dr. Grubb's research, check out his faculty site for Florida State University's Coastal and Marine Laboratory. The links are in this week's show notes. I want to thank Dr. Grubbs for sharing his time and expertise and for humoring some of my more self-interested queries. 
I really did love checking out my digital review copy of Shark Biology and Conservation and intend on picking up a copy at my local bookstore here in Hamilton. The face mask and gator giveaway goes on. Share your favorite episode of Defender Radio anywhere on social media or leave a review in your preferred podcast player. Send me a screen grab of it and you'll be entered in a chance to win a free gator or face mask. They're pretty great and I can't wait to send one out. If you need more details, check out the show notes or visit thefurbearers.com. That's all for this week, folks. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears, reminding you to be kind and to stay informed and stay strong. Mm-hmm.